We're going to go into our scripture reading today. Uh, the passage is Philippians chapter 2. Um, I was told that not all of the pages in the Bibles in the pew in front of you are the same. So to find that passage, if you want to follow along, no shame in using the table of contents and finding it in the back half of the book. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. Thanks, Becca. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed your vacation from me. <laughs> I had a nice month leave. And um, yeah, I just want to thank anybody who was involved in the sports camp and um, the music camp this last week. Thank you so much for volunteering and being part of that. Um, I don't know what fruit it's going to bear in those kids' lives, but I trust it will. That's why we do all the work we do. Um, yeah, this sermon's going to be a little different today. Uh, when, when I've taken leave before, so uh, six years ago or so, I took a sabbatical, and I tried to take some time to read on stuff that I felt like was going to come down the pike and hit the church broadside, and it, w the church tends to, like, always be kind of behind the eight ball, catching up with things culturally, and I try to take leaves to read on stuff that I think are coming that are going to be really significant, um, so that 
I'm not caught off guard. And so hopefully I, I can leave the church, lead the church reasonably well. The la- when I went on sabbatical seven years ago, the thing I read up on was um, uh, gender study, bio, uh, gender dysphoria, all that kind of stuff. I spent like a couple of weeks like doing a bunch of research on that in terms of like the science of it, policy, all that kind of stuff. And then like literally six months after I came out of my sabbatical, the thing like kind of hit like a firestorm and I felt really thankful that I was able to have spent some time on it, you know? Um, one, the thing I looked at some this month was um, this kind of spate of people doing faith deconstruction. So if you haven't looked at this, there's a lot of folks who are basically like, I'm deconstructing my faith. I was a Christian. I went to this church. I did that. And like now I'm deconstructing it. And meaning I'm leaving it is what most of them mean. Um, uh, I was on a fishing trip during this time. I listened to two hour plus long discussions with like prominent Christian theologians. One of them was a pastor at a pretty famous church, wrote a very famous book. Another one was a guy who was like in the Desiring God Network and like had a PhD in theology and studied under Kevin Van Hooser and whole, the whole bit. And they kind of went into all the reasons why they lost their faith. And I think it's important to, for me to do that. I'm not saying you need to read all these things. I'm just saying I think it's important for me because I need to understand, like, like, what's the poison in the system? What's hurting people? Like, what are they struggling with? What's the way we're living out our faith that's really difficult, right? And for a lot of these people, it, star- it starts with what they would consider to be a really bad church experience. In some cases, I think they had really bad church experiences. In other situations, they had a number of really bad church experiences. In other situations, it really wasn't that bad. They just didn't like it, you know? But one of the things we need to recognize is, like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, there were a spate of books that came out by a number of, like, atheist scholars, um, you know, like The God Delusion and Religion's Bad and Sam Harris and that kind of stuff. And on some level, they weren't the village atheist kind of arguments. They were more like the university atheist kind of arguments. But they're kind of to be expected. Like every 10 or 15 years, we have to endure another spate of these books that make the same arguments again and are easily refuted if you pay attention to the answers and so on. But this one's a little bit different because there's been a movement away from like empiricism, like arguing whether or not philosophically and scientifically Christianity is or is not true. So that would be like a lot of fights about like origins and evolution, that kind of stuff, but also things just like philosophically, does the notion of God make sense and all those kinds of— did Jesus rise from the dead as a historical argument? Those kinds of things. People don't care about that stuff anymore. And by that, I mean outside the church and for the most part inside the church. And then there's the moral question, right? About, about 11 years ago, depending on how you count, the major objection is like Christians are just bad, right? They're bad people. We became, it went from like, if you were a Christian, people thought, oh, maybe they're a good person, to— Oh, you're a Christian. I have no idea if you're a good or a bad person. To culturally speaking, if you say you're a Christian now in a lot of places, they just assume you're a bad person, right? Because you hate all kinds of people you're not supposed to hate, right? And so it used to be, like, when I, when I pastored in the, in the South, like, 15 years ago, you know, people who didn't even believe in God were members at churches because it got your respect. People thought, well, you're a good person. You go to church. You're part of the community. You know, that's great. You know, now it's like, you know, people try to hide it as, far, as long as they can. You know, when they, even, even like in a job interview, right? Now, um, however, in some ways, the objection to Christian faith has moved beyond that in this sense, that even moral categories are—you're still talking about, like, philosophy. You're still saying, like, what's, what's right, what's wrong? The, the God of the present age is a psychological God, not a moral God or a philosophical God. It's a psychological God. It's, it's how do I, as an individual, express myself? How can I be the kind of person I want to be? How can I be free from the constraints that keep me from being that kind of person? And how can I then live the life I've always wanted, both relative to my expression of myself to do what I want, so for example, keep all my money and spend it on myself, to how I comport myself or how I define myself, 
or also how I heal myself. So one of the ways in which this is morphed with um, a lot of discussion on trauma now, right? Like, I don't know if you've noticed that we hear about trauma all the time now, right? Um, that's not bad in itself, right? Like, it'd be great if we could help people heal from trauma more, right? That'd be fantastic, right? But like every time we talk about something in a scholarly and scientific way, in a way that can help us, that thing gets popularized really fast, and sometimes that popularization is really negative. So I think of critical race theory as one of those things. Like as an academic question of like, how do our dynamics socially with each other, like relative to like different racial patterns, like affect how we like do commerce and hire people and do schooling and talk about subjects? Like, I think that's important. And I think that like in American history, like race has figured into that. But when that gets popularized by people who like took it undergrad and like, and like make seminars out of it where you can make lots of money at companies and like it gets narrowed and put in social media and sometimes it just goes really bad. And I think critical race theory in its popular expressions has been a little off, right? Um, I did a podcast a little while ago. I don't even know if we've released it yet with like a, a critical race theory scholar that goes to um, Mount Zion. And it was, it was a great conversation. She's a believer. We had a great conversation. But like, there's a bunch of stuff downstream of that that came out popularly that's not great. Same th- I think the same, thing was, think the same thing is true about our research with trauma. There's a lot of really, really, really helpful stuff that like we as people have learned about trauma and how to help people heal in the last 10 or 15 years relative to trauma. The problem is though is trauma is also this fantastic excuse, functionally. Like, it's, it's like you just go, I've been traumatized. And then you like learn the language of the stuff that goes along with that, like I'm triggered or you're gaslighting me or blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, so that you can just recite these like psychological therapeutic catchphrases to people and you're just off the hook, right? And so what it's produced is it's become part of the psychological religion of self-expression to use all this psychological jargon to protect ourselves, right? Now, The way that's worked with people losing their faith is because people have these really negative church experiences. And because we're limited people and we're not everywhere at once, we can't help but fall into the fallacy of the part whole, right? Which is like, I think that the part that I experienced is the whole, right? The part of Christian experience I experienced is the whole of Christianity. Not really true, right? But here's the thing. There's a lot of Christians that kind of stink at it. Like, I mean, that are really mean. And part of it is American religion, especially in the more conservative end of things, because we're trying to keep things pure and kind of trying to believe the stuff we're supposed to believe. It's really all of our smoke screens and all of our lies are rooted in the truth. So when we come up with ways to like stay mean or not deal with our problems or not heal from our emotional issues that we got from our parents or whatever that kind of stuff is, we come up with like really biblical, religious sounding stuff to say to make ourselves feel better. And we also create religious-sized versions of what we think is going to fix it. So for example, like, if I'm like a mean person, right, I might be, I might like pray, I'll come up and have somebody pray me, the Holy Spirit just change me into a nice person, just like that. He'll heal me, heal me of my meanness. Wouldn't that be great? To tear down the demonic stronghold of, right? That's actually not how God says it works right? Like, physical healing sometimes is this, like, immediate thing where, like, I have cancer, and I come up, and somebody prays for me that I don't have cancer. Like, sometimes that happens as the first fruit of the beauty of God shown. But, like, when it comes to, like, sanctification, us being changed into the people we were meant to be, like, that's the process of following Jesus. It's a, it's a thing that happens over time in believing and walking with Christ in the Bible. It's called sanctification, or being made holy. 
It, it doesn't happen because you like one day were like, well, I just don't want to be mean anymore. No, like we have to repent and believe and change and love and talk to and become, right? And so these people have the negative church experience. And then they see, especially in conservative churches, because like if we were a liberal church, right, and we had all the same psychological dysfunction, we wouldn't use the same religious language to protect it. Does that make sense? The fact that churches like ours are more biblical, more conservative, all of our nonsense we put into like biblical stuff so that we can protect it. And we don't even sometimes know we're doing it. What that means is, is that when we're full of it and people know it, they can't help but think it's the theology because that's where we hit our junk. It's like you sweep all the crap under the bed and something stinks. And so the person goes, man, I don't know about your room, but your bed stinks. Like it's, it's actually the dead cat under the bed, but they don't know that. They just think your bed stinks. And so there's all these younger people, people of all ages and all experiences who are like, I think Christianity stinks. I'm getting out. And they don't realize we've got dead cats under the bed. You understand? Are you wondering what says to do with Philippians 2? I promise I'm getting there, okay? Just hang with me. Just indul please indulge this because I think it'll help you. Okay. So they go from that experience to thinking there's a cat under the bed in Christianity. It's Christianity that's a problem. It's not because all the Christians keep telling me I'm having a bad church experience, but that's just gaslighting. I, I need to free my mind of this thing. I need to get out, right? And so people are like, I'm going to deconstruct my faith, right? Now, first of all, let me just tell you this. If you're a person and you're thinking about deconstructing your faith, here's what I would encourage you to be the very first step of that. Change the label before you even start. Don't—deconstructing is a, an inherently negative category, which assumes when you get done, there will be nothing left of it. Think about the word you're using. Deconstruct. Tear apart. Right? And of course, it's connected to a tradition of deconstruction, post-structural, post-modern philosophy, in which a number of people from the continent of Europe put together lots of incomprehensible sentences and called them books, in which they just tore apart everything people thought they knew about anything, including communication. Right? And once you get in that whirlwind, you come to where you like, you don't even know like if a shirt's a shirt anymore. You understand? It's not a very constructive process. Right? And the problem with deconstruction is not deconstructing things, because you can deconstruct anything. It's one of the most intellectually lazy things you can possibly do, is tear things apart. Anybody can tear things apart. The question is, what needs to be reordered and replaced, and what's off, and how do you fix that, and what does it look like to really make the thing go, right? So just, I would just say, take the word deconstruction off it and put on the word reconceptualization. Like, I, like something's got to happen in how I'm thinking, feeling, and acting, and believing about this, because I think something's really off. But I'm not going to say, well, I'm just going to tear it apart. Or I'm going to tear it all apart and then maybe see if it comes back together again. Because it's not going to. Because as you tear it apart, your attitude towards its destruction gets tied up into it. So um, you emotionally form yourself in such a way that thing isn't going to come back together when you get to the end of the process. But if you say, look, I need to reconceptualize my faith. That's just part of being a Christian. Because it's just part of being an adult. Like if our kids in fourth grade, like classes over there, what we're teaching them about Jesus, if, they're, if they get to like 24 years old and they literally think about Jesus exactly literally what we taught them in the fourth grade class, is that good or bad? And the answer is, well, it's, it's both, kind of, because the stuff we teach them in that class is true, but as they get more complicated and the world that they live in gets more complicated and, the, and there's all these things that are nuanced and related to each other, they have to then like rethink about what it means. Like, if we say, when we say, like, do, you, like, do, we, do, do we sing up? No, that's the song we sing later, I guess. But, like, we tell kids, look, Jesus is going to take care of you. Okay? You tell a, a six-year-old, Jesus is going to take care of you. 
Right? Is that true? Yeah, it is. Okay? What does that kid think it means? Right? That my mom and dad aren't going to leave. That we're always going to have enough money. That I'm not going to get sick. That mom's not going to get sick. That that's what they think it means. Is that what it means? No, it is not what it means. You understand? So that kid is going to have to reconceptualize his faith. Right? You can have a relationship with Jesus. That's what we teach them. You can have a relationship with Jesus. Is that true? Yes, it's true. What do they think that means? He's going to talk to me. We're going to go on dates. We're, I, like, I, I'm going to, you know, like when, when I talk, I'm going to feel like he's listening. Like if I ask a question, I'm going to get an answer. I'm never going to feel abandoned or like he's not paying attention to me. I'm going to feel cared for because he's going to make me feel cared for all the time. Is that the way it is? No, it is not. Right? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Yes, you do. Does it have to— Right? That kid is going to have to reconceptualize that. Right? And so there's so many things. God's going to protect me in my work. Is he? I don't know. Right? To, to follow Jesus will be to get yourself a good name. Is that true? Yes, in the sense that you will deserve a good name. Because you'll act righteously. Does it mean you'll have a good name? No. Just read more of the Bible. Right? So like, we're going to have to reconceptualize these things. But here's what happens, right? So we don't teach people that. We don't teach our young people that. They can't help but make the part whole fallacy. Then they think the church is the problem. Then, because they've been taught to, they psychologize it, right? They're like, oh, that means Christianity isn't just false. It's psychologically unhealthy. It's the problem. It's a cult. It's a— it's this thing that, like, it gaslights us. It actually, it actually keeps you psychologically broken rather than heals you. Okay, now why is that a problem? Because what kind of promises do we make to people? On Jesus' behalf. Come to Jesus and what? It's right here. Shall we? If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love in your heart, any fellowship in sharing with his spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Right? Apostle Paul is saying, to live is Christ and die is gain. That you can have a joy unceasing. That you can be, it says in the, the following part of this chapter, you can be, your life can be destroyed by the powers around you, and you can rejoice and be glad in your life being destroyed with other people's lives being destroyed, is the metaphor. Because he says, remember, he says, even if I'm like a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice of your faith, I'm glad. What does that mean? Right? Because he, he says, look, my hope is I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ because of you. What does he mean? He means I'm preaching the gospel to help people come to Jesus. Through you, I'm preaching the gospel so that you'll lead more people to Jesus. Hopefully, we're going to be seeds to a harvest that forever we'll boast about before the Lord, sharing in his glory that he did an amazing thing through us. But he says, but if none of that happens, meaning if they just kill us all, if they wipe out the church in Philippi with sheer political power, and if they kill me in prison, he said, even if you're like a lamb being sacrificed on the altar, and then there's a drink offering of wine being poured over it, and there's a fragrance that goes up to God, it just gets burned up and destroyed. He says, even in that, I rejoice and am glad. And then he says this, and you should rejoice and be glad too. 
You see what I'm telling you? We tell people, come to Jesus and you're going to find peace. You're going to find joy, fulfillment, love, hope, real fellowship with other people. You're going to find that stuff. It's going to be so great. Right? Let me think about this. You remember years ago when the Catholic priest molestation stories came out in Boston and swept the country and the world? And it was like, oh my gosh, all these kids got molested by priests. This is crazy. And you're like, it must be like, if you were a Catholic kid, it was like the highest likelihood to get molested like anywhere in the world, right? Like, I was a Catholic kid. I was an altar boy. Like, I was a good candidate for that. I had a great priest. I mean, he was super old and didn't believe in Christianity, but he never touched me, you know? And like, (laughs) it's kind of a strange joke. Okay, so, but like, no, because like, I remember looking at statistics and you were like, five to seven times more likely to have been molested at a public school in the same period of time. You weren't safer outside the Catholic Church. So why was this such a big problem? And the answer is because we expected something different from the priests and something much different from the bishops. And because of the, what they had promised, because of who they were supposed to be, because of who they said they were, holy men, overseers of Christ's very church, to see that they hadn't stopped this was mind-boggling in a way that like, even in something as, as culturally sacred as a public institution like a school, it's just not that high. And so like, because of the promises implicitly made, it was much more scandalizing. Now, of course, it was also scandalizing because we love to hate God's authority, and this is a great way to pee on it. But it was, it was deserved in that case, right? And so, like, you, you got to real—what promises do we make to each other, to people who come to hear the gospel, to ourselves? Okay. You see, so they go from bad church experience to the part to whole fallacy, right, to the hypocrisy fallacy, to um, Christianity is the problem, therefore Christianity is psychologically problematic. That is, it's psychologically bad for you, not good for you, right? And then where some of them go is this. Like this one theologian said this. He said, the re- one of the fundamental reasons is this. Because Christianity is an all-or-nothing proposition. The way he said it, he says, I remember going to college, having accepted Jesus, and I sang the song called, I'm your soldier now. And I identified as being like the soldier of Jesus Christ, right? And it was like, it was my everything. And he's like, I realize now that that's where it went wrong. That accepting religion as an all-or-nothing proposition is what stunted me. I couldn't become a self because I had taken on this like self-stultifying sub-identity which controlled me intellectually and emotionally, and I just broke free of it. Now the question is, is that right? Is that right? You know? We don't want it to be right. Like, first of all, is it true that Christianity is an all-or-nothing proposition? Well, at least on one level it is. Like, on one level it isn't in this sense. Because Jesus, the creator, is consummate with creation, everything he calls us to renounce, he gives back to us better. So he calls us to renounce romance, but gives it to us back better. He calls us to renounce certain pleasures, but then— connects us to a creation that's full of pleasure. He, right, so in, in one sense, it's not all or nothing because 
He wants to give us back everything he causes us to step back from so that he can redeem our relationship to it. So in one sense, that's wrong. But in another sense, it's totally true. Because when, when Paul says to live as Christ and to die is gain, what he's saying is, you can take everything in my life away from me, but my identity, my all or nothing identity in Jesus, and I'm okay with it. It's gain. That's the proposition of Christianity, and that's irreducible. You take that away, you take away Christianity. It's over. Right? So now what? You see, part of the issue with the new religion, and the thing that's ironic about this is, essentially the new religion is, by removing the authority of somebody like Christ, it allows us to be flexible enough to be whatever we need to be so that we can pursue happiness and fulfillment. That is, the religious structure serves our felt needs so that the gods are then formed as we need them to be, so as to, in a sense, serve us as we serve them. The thing that's kind of strange about that is, is what? What is that? What kind of religion is that? That's paganism. We just regressed 5,000 years. You understand? Right? The great insight, the 5,000 or 10,000 year leap, was Moses, was monotheism, that there's a God you're going to listen to. Because the world had tired of paganism because of all the nonsense it's created. And so we have no cultural memory of paganism anymore. We've lived in a Christian haunted world for a thousand years at least. Right? And so we don't know what we're going back to. Not really. It'll take us a couple of generations to get tired of it at least. But you see, it's also possible that it's the case that in order to create the kind of beings that we actually have to be to become ourselves, it actually has to begin with an all-or-nothing being and an all-or-nothing relationship to that being. That is our one thing before he can give us back all the other things in their proper place. Why, why are we talking about this? You might be thinking, Nick, why are we talking about this? Here's why. Because I think there's way more of you than you would like to believe who are just a couple steps from deconstructing your faith. Not because Christianity is about to lose or die. Many people have pronounced the death of Christianity and it always outlives its pallbearers. But because we're, we're hurting, we're tired, we're frustrated, we're angry, some of us. And I think that the reason for that is that we live in a world where we have taken in the warp and woof of its worldly religion into our religion. And the world is a heartless place right now. It says it believes in spirituality, but it doesn't. It, it believes in a self-fulfilling cold empiricism, and it's lost its poetry. There's no more real art. And If you lose the romanticism of Christianity, you will never enjoy being a Christian. If you, you, if you lose, and I don't like saying it this way because you, you, some of you misunderstand it. If you lose its femininity, it will rot in its masculinity. There's, okay, let's review the thesis of this book, okay? So like we're in chapter two, but the apostle tells us what this whole book is about, okay? It's this. Verse 9 in chapter 1. This is my prayer. I want you to read this with me if you can. If you think it's too hokey, you just can't emotionally do it. 
Okay, fine. But if you, if you can realize this is a personal, like, experience, then let's do it, right? That your love— Oh, you guys all close your Bibles. Yeah, because when was I going to get to it, right? I, I get you. You're on— you're, this is my prayer. So he's never—he hasn't met these people. He's in prison. He may never get to come to them. He hopes he can. What's he doing? Why is he writing this letter? Why is the apostle doing everything he's done for everyone he's done it for, including these people? He says this. Here's my goal. This is my prayer. I'm asking God for this for you, that your love may abound— abound is a superlative of abundance, and that's not enough. Abound more and more. Okay, do you realize what I'm saying here? This is really important because um, our church and churches like ours tend to be theologically conservative, meaning like we believe the stuff God told us and we're going to believe it. We're not going to just make up our religion every 20 minutes, okay? Now, one of the failures of like more liberal churches is, is that like there's a lot of emotion, but you're like, what do we believe in here? You know, just whatever the culture believes. Because that's what it ends up turning out to be most of the time. Um, but here's the thing. There, the, remember, different emphases have different shadows, different problems. And when, you tr- when you're wanting to be pure, when you're wanting to stand for what's right, when you're wanting to live with conviction, right, what tends to happen is we tend to get more defensive, and then we tend to get more angry. And we lose our hearts. We lose love. Real tenderheartedness, compassion, feeling. Right? Like, like, all of a sudden you just realize one day, you're not just not a crier. You can't cry, and you don't cry when you should cry. When things are like truly heartbreaking, you can watch something incredibly beautiful, and you don't, you don't cry. That's not a virtue. It's a brokenness, right? Just, I mean, you just wish your kid was a little better all the time. It's not a virtue. It's a brokenness, you know? You just don't laugh loud. It's hard for other people to get you to laugh. You laugh at your jokes, but like it's hard. It's hard for you. Like, you, mo- you more often think a joke is corny and stupid than you think it's funny. That's not a virtue. It's a brokenness, you know? Why do people laugh, right? Lewis said this in, in Screwtape Letters. They said, he said there's number, a number of kinds of laughters. One of them is affection. It's like they're just, people are just looking for a pretense to laugh because they like each other, right? Like there's certain people you get together with and they say the dumbest thing and you just can't help but laugh. And it's not because it's really that funny or that, but you like them and so you're, you're pleased to laugh at their jokes. Is that how you feel about people? Like they're, like, I've struggled with this a lot, personally. And remember, right, like, churches, especially when they have senior pastors for a while, they tend to gather people around them who are like the senior leader in all their—in a number of their strengths, and also the shadows of those strengths or their weaknesses. And I I feel like the—what the apostle says in this is 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 he's arguing pretty explicitly that without an emotional full-heartedness, we can't actually be Christians. I'm not saying you can't go to heaven. I think that every Christian who goes to heaven is going to probably be a sucky Christian. You know what I mean? Like, if you look at the story of the whole Bible, like, where are the good leaders? Where are the good marriages? 
where are the kids that all turn out faithful in the stories? Right? Like, you can read the Proverbs and be like, teach a child the way he should go, and then they grow up, they won't depart from it. Well, that's fantastic, but God's kids turned out terribly. Right? And like, you look at all these people that you think would have been great parents, and their kids are terrible. Like, you're like, yeah, well, David killed somebody. Look, I'm not talking about David. Think about Samuel. I mean, Samuel's like one of the most, fa- one of the top five, maybe, most faithful people in the entire Bible. And they, they get rid of the whole prophetic office because his, his sons are like sleeping with young women who are just trying to come and get a word from the Lord as like a price for religious like goods and services, and they're stealing food from people and threatening them because they don't get the like the backstrap of the lamb. The Samuel's children. You're like, well, Joseph was like only spoken well about. Yeah, it's true. But the last chapters of Genesis, right after his death, through Joseph's reforms, the Pharaoh consolidates all of the land in Egypt so that he can be more of a tyrant. Otherwise, I don't, I don't know why that those sections are in the Bible if not to show us that Joseph, being incredibly faithful, still ended up with a politically negative legacy for the well-being of the people of Egypt, which then led to the captivity of the Israelites, even though he was there to save the proto-Israelites. Like, everybody sucks, okay? I use that word technically. You understand? (laughs) And it's not supposed to be like, oh, we're all bad Christians. Like, it's, no, we're all terrible at this. So, so, I don't, okay, I don't know how to say this. Okay, I'm trying to like, listen, okay, I'm not preaching theology right now. This is poetry, okay? You, we, I'm trying to awaken romanticism in you, the good kind. Okay, the good kind. The kind that makes you feel something. You're, we're supposed to feel something, okay? The Apostle Paul says, do you feel the encouragement of being in union with Christ? Do you feel it? Do you feel the comfort of his love? Is it, is it carry with you? Do you feel it? Right? Do you, are you, do you have the, the, the fellowship, the union, the walking with the spirit? Do you, do you, do you feel a sense in which you know the Spirit is walking with you. He's there. Sometimes you feel it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you feel like there's guides from him. Sometimes you don't know where he is. But, you, but he's promised to you and sworn to you and given to you and been blood-bought for you and is God's sovereign plan for you. And he's with you. Do you, like, do you feel it? He said, and then he says, in the translation, is there any tenderness or compassion? Okay, that's a great translation, okay? But the King James Version actually is more literal in this case. It says, do you, do you have any bowels? I think there's somebody who were like, you walked into church this morning and somebody asked you how your bowels were. You don't have to identify yourself if you don't want to. But like, so I was, somebody was walking out and they were like, Nick, you talked about our, like the bowels of our emotions. And I asked somebody as a joke after the sermon, how are your bowels? And they hadn't been to the sermon yet. And (laughs) I think they were really offended and it was very awkward. And I was like, yeah, that sounds awkward for that person. And you. But like, almost every language in the history of the world has had a word for something deeper than the heart. You know, people talk about like, I have it in my heart to do this, and my heart feels this way, and heart, heart, heart. Okay, your heart's really important. It's where, it's where like the intellect and all, a bunch of things come together. You know what I mean? The, the heart isn't so much the center of your feelings. The heart, it's in, in scripture and in a place like that, is the center where everything comes together. 
your thinking and your conscience and your feelings and your—it all just kind of comes together in this place we call the heart, where it effluences and you think and feel and you decide and act and your will is there and, right? But there's this thing, it's like, are there, do you have any bowels at all, right? Mahama Gandhi, there's this, there's this story that he— well, the question he most asked employees when he would come into their, his offices was, have you had a good bowel movement in the last day? He would ask them that. Like, young women, he'd be like, you know, he's like older and bald. He's like, did you, have you had a good bowel movement, you know? And he, he was hoping they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I just had a great one. Had some coffee, and it just, you know? But like, I mean, think about this. When, so, when something like really strange happens, or like really off-putting, or something that makes you nervous, normally you don't feel it like in your heart. Like, people say, well, yeah, I got sick to my stomach right? Or like emotional things will happen where you're like, you'll kind of poop a little weird, or you like something. Like it literally, there's some kind of connection between your nonverbal internal psychology and deep feelings and literally your bowels. Can we admit this together or not? It's universally known in all of human experience, right? And so the reference to the bowels is not just like in in the Psalms, there's like this word, kind of the word for the liver. It's like, like something deeper than the heart, that is the seat of the, the deepest emotions a human being can feel, and also psychosomatically related emotionally in ways that aren't totally verbal. Now think about this for just one second, okay? The Apostle Paul says, do you have any bowels? Meaning, do you feel the comfort, encouragement, and coining the fellowship of the Spirit in your bowels? Okay, now that sounds weird, but think about this. Modern trauma research says that a lot of our dissociations and the places where we're really broken and psychologically hurt are stored in a part of our psyche connected to a part of our brain that's not particularly verbal. It's like a non-verbal thing. So a lot of the counseling things people are trying now isn't talk therapy. It's like trying to access things that are non-verbal in non-talk therapy kinds of ways. To get to help memories and things come out of places that once you memorize, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. It totally happened, but it was like, It was like it was gone, right? And then to like be able to process it, so pull the thing out of where it's hidden in the nonverbal part of you that comes out in feelings. So like a lot of our dysfunctions are like, I don't know why I just yelled at that person, or like, I don't know why this thing's making me so anxious or so angry or so, right? Like a lot of our durable psychological problems, it's partly because it's coming from literally a nonverbal part of your brain and psyche. You understand? Which is connected to your bowels. You see what the Apostle Paul is actually saying? It's something that's very strangely, psychologically sophisticated in a really weird kind of way. He's saying, I actually want you to feel Christ, the beauty of the truth of Christ, not just in the verbal centers of your theological cognition, not just in your mind, not just in your like, let me explain justification to you. He said something has to happen through repetition, through feeling, through poetry, through the romance of the message of Christ, so that its truthfulness, its depth, its meaning actually filters into the parts of you that only feel and that know intuitively and that you don't completely control cognitively from moment to moment. So that it's in your bowels, so to speak. You understand? And then compassion, that word is the same word translated in the Old Testament where it says, if somebody does this sin, stone them and show no mercy. That is, they're to be killed without concern. You're supposed to show that they've disconnected themselves from their humanity and that you're killing them like they are like an animal. 
Like, there's no, no like, because normally you would, don't just kill people, right? Like, you know, like, let me take this rock, I'm going to beat you to death with it. You're like, they're a human being, and you're supposed to feel a certain kind of human concern relative to you and the other human being. And, he's, and so in those situations, God says, without mercy, that's what it means. Without concern that should exist between one to the other. Now think about this. What is the, like, fundamental interpersonal byword for why we should believe everything politically we're supposed to believe? It's because we're supposed to have what for other people who aren't exactly like us? Empathy. Right? Which is an extremely imprecise word, but it, what it's supposed to mean is this interpersonal concern that should exist between people if our hearts are really alive. Compassion. Tenderness. There's a number of ways to translate that. But you see, the, the Apostle Paul, it's not a mere instinct. Empathy is a psychological instinct. It's not a moral virtue, right? Now, if you don't have empathy, that's tough. But there was a book a few years ago called After Virtue, or not After Virtue. That's a different book. It was called Against Empathy. And one of the interesting things about that book, the guy was like, empathy is terrible. I was like, I'm going to read this book. That sounds fantastic, right? So one of the things that he looks at is people who are— um, I think sociopathic, is that the right word for people who just don't feel any empathy for anybody else? So it's like 3% of the population, 3-5% is sociopathic, meaning they have no internal feeling of how they should relate to another person. It's like broken, right? That, but here's the thing. Not all sociopaths behave sociopathically. Do you know that? Because people are like, listen, there's 5% out there, so like be careful who you date, because like you're going to bump into—if you date 20 people, that's a soci— you're going to get at least one sociopath, right? Don't be a target. Well, okay, there's some wisdom to that. Because there's a lot of sociopaths playing sociopaths. But there's a lot of sociopaths that are wonderful people. Wonderful people. Because in their mind they go, yeah, I don't want to treat people badly. How are you supposed to treat people? And they do have some emotions. And then they, they learn to model in their minds. Like, and some of us are closer to this than others. Like, I don't think I'm a, quite a sociopath. But I find myself sometimes, like, empathizing with other people. And sometimes I find myself saying— what would an emotionally healthy person do right now? <laughs> you know? I have a friend who's a very loving, compassionate person, and he confided in me. He's like, that's, Nick, that's all I'm ever doing. I don't know what broke or where it broke or how it broke, but I don't feel those feelings. I have no empathy for people. Zero. And he was like, it's super helpful when people are trying to empathy bully me, you know? But it's not helpful when I'm parenting or loving my wife, or in a lot of situations. And so I'm always modeling mentally how a person with those right feelings would act. You see, you see the issue? Even without empathy, people can be loving and tender and caring and godly, right? Now, I think psychologically as we grow in health, as our heart comes back to life, we will grow in empathy, connected to mercy and compassion and right interpersonal concern. But you, you see what I'm saying here, you guys? A disproportionate number of us in conservative religion are emotionally dead. And it is a product of how we're living out our Christianity. And we're doing it because we love God and we want to be faithful. And there's this way in which we, it's like we've taken our aorta and used it to strangle our heart. It's the weirdest thing. Like, we want so much to love God and show God how much we love Him. And we want to live in love and love other people. We go, to do that, I'm going to have to be really disciplined. And I'm going to have to believe in depravity in a way that, like, makes me not able to become a person because I have to doubt everything about myself. Right? Like, that's not what depravity means. Depravity means that our 
God-given creation, the image of God in which we are made to be God's stewards and his actors in the world because we bear his very image as his sons and daughters has been twisted by this sickness of sin that we need to be careful about and understand how to put to death as we grow fully into the image of God in the full personality and being and self that we're meant to be with all the healing involved in that. And so I, my heart is broken for people who want so much to honor Jesus and to love Jesus and feel like they're losing their faith slowly by the crushing of their heart and they see it in their relationships, and they see their, like, their relationship with their spouse kind of growing colder. They're with their kids. They're like, they don't feel loving, and they don't know what's wrong, and they feel like this was supposed to be this really loving thing. Like, what happened? You know? And what the apostle is saying here is he's saying, listen, don't believe the myth that the thing that will make you feel emotionally alive is to be anything you want at any minute at any time, to throw off all restraint and to go back to a man-formed gods of paganism re-wreathed under the banner of expressive individualism. That's not really going to save you. It's not really going to help you. It's not the answer. But you were meant to be alive. You were meant to feel. You were meant to heal. But some of us have to reconceptualize, not deconstruct. Right? I think a lot of us believe a lot of things really well. Things God has revealed about himself. Things that are deeply true and beautiful. Things that we should never give up. One of them is that our commitment to Jesus is all or nothing. We have given him everything. And we wait and we walk with him to see how he gives us things back more beautifully than before. And because Jesus is all or nothing, it's the only way to bring about the three miracles of verses three and following, which is, to bring about a real concord or unity between like-minded people. That's a miracle. I mean, think about this age of division we live in. He said that if we have those feelings, that romance, that poetry with Christ, we will have the hearts to be like-minded. I mean, think about this for just a second. Like, think about somebody who you're like-minded with. Like, you don't have to argue with them. You don't have to empathy bully them. You don't have to really do anything to be in enough agreement to feel like you can laugh and talk and share and like share humanity with them and just enjoy being around them. Think about something like, like, is that an intellectual approach or is it a feeling? Is it something you just experience and it like just happens? It comes from the bowels. And in the compassion that comes from a certain kind of romance about life or humility, what can really make you be so self-forgetful as to really discover those other people around you? To really see them. To see them. Not just to be like, oh yeah, I see you there. But to see you there. The real person you are. How you really feel. For me to just to know and to care about it. I get so tired of religiously conservative churches believing good orthodox theology that doesn't produce love. And people come into our churches and they're like, yeah, everybody's really friendly because they know how to model love. Like, but they don't love. Like, nobody wants to help me. I'm still a mess. Like, I don't know if people are going to keep being my friends after I just, like, show them what I'm really like. I don't know, like, yeah, my kids, they don't behave like your kids. Like, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like, I mean, look around. There are no drug addicts here, right? There's no flunkies. There's no, there's no, there's, I mean, there's some people badly dressed because they're computer programmers, but there's not, like, people with bad clothes. I mean, like, they're not here. You understand? They're not here. 
I was with a guy yesterday, I was, like, at their church. I was in the dunk tank of this, like, all African-American church last week. It was funny. I went to the church service. I was, like, the only white guy there. And then they had me come up front, because it was an African-American church, because I'm a pastor, so I have to step up front. And then he joked in the sermon. He's like, Pastor Nick's going to come back and be the dunk tank next week when we have the, the backpack giveaway in the carnival of the church. I was like, okay. So I called him up that week. I was like, so I'm going to be in the dunk tank? What time is it? He's like, really? I was like, yeah, when's it going to be? So I showed up yesterday, because, I mean, think about this. I, like, I was out, out cutting trees down at somebody's house. I was dying of heat stroke. What's better than a dunk tank in the middle of the day, right? So I showed up that thing. I got to eat two corn dogs. Talk to this pastor for like an hour. I'm talking to this pastor for an hour. These people keep walking by. He's like, oh, Pastor Sarah, come over here. Brings over this, this woman. I don't think that's her real name. He's like, he's like, yes, this pastor, she does this, she does this. She took in those kids. She does this thing. She walks away. She's like, listen, when she came out, when I met her on Ally Drive, she was 98 pounds. She was addicted to crack like nobody's business. Like, and then, it, but it was like, it was, and then a prophet so-and-so, come here. And blah, blah, Yeah, he, he, when his mom disappeared. Nobody knows who she is. You know, this brother took them in. He's going to Marquette now. Like his whole church. He's like, look, Nick, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, but like, behold what drug addicts and people who have, have been broken by everyone can be. And it was so inspiring. And I, and I felt so embarrassed personally. You know what I mean? And you see, the third miracle is sacrifice. Sacrifice. It's to give it up for love. You, you can't do that mentally modeling. You can't, you can't get there from theological precision. You can't. There has to be poetry. There has to be romance. There has to be love. There has to be passion. There has to be enjoyment. There has to be laughter. There has to be nonsense. There has to be there has to be an awakening, a life, and aliveness. And if, like, if you feel like super dead, and you're like, I'm gonna, I'm, we're gonna make it with Jesus. And like, it's like you're white knuckling it. Like, you gotta stop. Like, and, and the answer is not leaving Jesus. That's not the answer. It's not deconstructing your faith. It's probably profoundly reconceptualizing it. Because misunderstanding is so easy. It's, e it's so easy. One little turn of thought can keep us captive. But listen, I don't, I don't want to live 20 more years with you guys doing a bunch of faithful stuff where we don't laugh and enjoy each other and hug people who did really bad things and shouldn't have and may go back into them two months from now. And I just don't, that's not what we were called to do. Not who we were called to be. And I don't think the, the answer is just, hey, get better, everybody. Let's all take in six foster kids. I don't think that's the answer. I think the Apostle Paul says the answer is romance. It is the poetry of Christ. Uh, this is the last thing I'll say. Um, Tolkien said once, he said, we tell fairy tales, fairy stories, because there is a bigger and greater fairy story, fairy story in the universe, which is Christ. That is, like, we, we mess with empirical reality to focus on the value reality of the story and bravery and courage and thought and betrayal and honesty and truth and all those difficult realities of human existence. And so because we have dragons and stuff, we can put away like, well, what's empirically real? And we can get at what matters in terms of truth and beauty, right? And he's like, and, and so Jesus is the perfect fairy story. That is, he comes and he suspends the realities that shut down our ability to feel and he reawakens our capacity for fantasy, but the fantasy is actually true. And, and similarly, Jesus is the, the true and greater romantic. 
Like when the romantics in the 1800s were like, well, you know, Darwin and Marx and Freud like destroyed religion. So like we, but like everything's falling apart. Like what matters now? Where's the beauty? And they thought nature was strong enough. And so they wrote the, all these poems. They're like, we'll save it with poetry. And it was only Coleridge and maybe Wordsworth late in his life who like in the between laudanum highs was like, no, there has to be a true and greater poem. It's the only way this will stand is if all the beauty of nature, the rustling leaves, and seeing more there than just what is empirically there, but what is there, that is the poetry, that is what's necessary for us to remain or become human. And it takes the divine becoming human to reawaken the deadness in creation and to bring us out of it through a divine poetry of death and resurrection and life and incarnation and ascension. So that there's this play on words, right? The word vainglory is built on two Greek words. I'm sorry, I said I was, the last thing was the last thing. But just, li- just listen to this for a second. Think about this. The word vainglory, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vainglory is kenos doxa. Kenos means to empty. And doxa means glory. Empty glory, vainglory. Don't give yourself to vain glory. And then you know what it says in the very next verses? Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who kenao emptied himself to be human, to be in suffering, to give himself to the very death of the cross so that God would what? Exalt him to the doxa, the glory. Right? Jesus, instead of, instead of giving himself to the heart-deadening empiricism of vain glory, empty glory, he emptied himself to be glorified. And in seeing the poetry of that, you and I can find the bravery, the encouragement, the comfort, and the fellowship of being willing to empty ourselves and find through it glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us to experience the things you've made us promise to others. Help us to be pure before you. We want to be faithful in our doctrines and in the truths that we believe. But help us to be people who write poems about it, who laugh and smile and are happy. People who have sp- not just spiritual heads, but spiritual bodies. And so full hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.